This evening's New Testament readings are from Luke 10, 21-24, and John 15, 9-11. Luke 10, 21-24. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then, turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see, and do not see it, and to hear what you hear, and do not hear it. John fifteen nine to 11. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please join me as we pray? Father, we understand you to be the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's you who have instituted worship, and it's you who have made your presence made known, and the word and songs and prayers, and the table we'll take later. And so, uh, how can we not have expectation that you'll change us now? We need you to. In Christ's name, amen. The Bible testifies that Jesus Christ is God-man, fully divine, fully human, and we're spending time studying the second part of that, trying to understand better the humanity of Jesus Christ, and we're beginning with his feelings. We've looked at the compassion of Jesus, we looked at the righteous anger of Jesus, and this evening, I want to consider the joy of Jesus Now, on the one hand, the things that brought Jesus joy shouldn't surprise us because he was human. He enjoyed a good meal, friends around a table laughing, a good glass of wine. This is one of the reasons the religious leaders critiqued him. They said he was a glutton and a drunken because he enjoyed those things. And yet there are these other sources of joy that Jesus had that I think mystify us. We just can't understand how in the world he could have joy in the face, for instance, of his suffering, of his sorrow. And he spoke openly about this. In the Gospel of John, he repeatedly says, My soul is deeply troubled in anguish. He was described as being appalled and despondent. As he faced his suffering, he faced it with loathing and agony, intense feelings. And when you understand that this wasn't just physical suffering, but spiritual suffering, to borrow uh, a lyric from the police, you understand that he indeed was the king of pain. He endured all the pain there was to bear. And yet against this backdrop of sorrow... 
You see his joy clearly, just like a brilliant constellation of stars against the night or a candle in a dark room. His joy burns amidst these heart-wrenching and life-extinguishing pains. Uh, quoting again B.B. Uh, Warfield, this is my third week of quoting a guy named B.B. Uh, it was actually Benjamin Breck- Bre- Breckenridge, I think. B.B., I like to call him. Um, many people. Anyway, that was his name. Uh, all right. This is what he said. We call our Lord the man of sorrows, and the designation is appropriate for one who came into the world to bear the sins of men and to give his life a ransom. However, we must bear in mind that our Lord did not come into the world to be broken by the power of sin and death, but to break it. He came as a conqueror with a gladness of victory in his heart. For the joy set before him, he was able to endure the cross. If our Lord was the man of sorrows, he was more profoundly still the man of joy. The man of joy. So how do we understand that? Especially those of us, all of us, that struggle to maintain our joy. To struggle day in and day out to to hope and live in joy. So I want to do that. And I want to do it by observing three things about Jesus' joy. This isn't everything you can say about Jesus' joy, but three things that I think are worthy of our attention. First of all, Jesus' joy was affected by circumstances, but not controlled by them. Jesus' joy was affected by circumstances, but not controlled by them. Now, um, our joy is often opposite. Our joy is attached to maybe temperament, our personality, or it's temperamental. It's up and down. For instance, you might be someone who was born with a sunny disposition. You're just someone that tends to be happy, positive. And that's not to be disdained. It's not to be treated with cynicism. God has made you that way. But I hope you know that as you progress in life, that will not sustain you. Right? It's a natural temperament, but it is not a supernatural characteristic that can endure hard times. Jesus' joy wasn't up and down based on personality, nor was it up and down based on circumstance. In John 15, we read, he called it my joy. It was something that belonged to him. It was intrinsic. It was innate. In the parable, the tenants that Jesus told, he greets the workers in the end of that parable by saying, enter into the joy of your master. Come and enter into my joy that I possess and belongs to me. God is gloriously happy. And the Son of God is gloriously happy. It's who he is. And because this joy belongs to him, he can give it to you. In fact, that's what he intends to do. He says that these things I have spoken, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I will give you my joy, and it won't be partial. It'll be full joy. And so if you're someone going, well, geez, it seems like God blessed this person with more joy than me. I guess it's because of who they are. You're wrong. 
He only gives full joy to those that know him. And this is wonderful news, especially if you're a bit of an Eeyore. You know, you're a, you're a sad Susie, you're a dismal Dan. You're someone it's not naturally given to. This is wonderful news because, news because this joy is available and accessible for all who have faith in Christ. Who all who avail themselves of Jesus Christ. My joy I give to you. Despite personality. Despite circumstance. I, you know, we were talking earlier, Andrew was talking earlier about this is a month dedicated to celebrating the legacy of African Americans in America. And I immediately thought about the African-American church, which I think is one of the greatest examples of this supernatural joy amidst amazingly hard circumstances. This ability to both affirm and uh, moan and groan, but to be joyful. If you've ever been to a a home-going service, it's a great example of that. So, the other thing is, our joy is often predictable. You know, if life is, if finances are going well, if job is going well, if I feel well, if there's something I'm looking forward to, I'm joyful. I'm happy. And that way, it's selfishly based. It's self-centered in that way. Uh, I was reading an article in The Atlantic, and uh, the title was, There's More to Life Than Being Happy. And in it, they quote the Journal of Positive Psychology, and they say, happiness without meaning characterizes a relatively shallow self-absorbed or even selfish life in which things go well, needs and desires are easily satisfied, and difficult or taxing entanglements are avoided. This is the case when your joy is basically based or is based on circumstances. I'm reminded of a film where uh, a husband brings flowers to his wife and she retorts, you love to bring flowers to me when you're feeling good. When you're feeling joyful. And oftentimes, um, that's the case with people who are basically mastered by circumstances with joy. We want to invite people into our joy in that if I'm happy, I want you to be happy. Why? Because I don't want you to kill my happy bus. And so we don't really think about where other people are at. We're like, hey, let's just do this. We're, you know, we're in a mood to tell jokes just because we're in a mood to tell jokes. And our joy is not only predictable, we will predict it. How often I find myself doing this where I look ahead to the week I'm going to have and I already slate what sort of emotional thing to each thing. You know, Tuesday, oh, you know, I got that meeting, that meeting. I am going to be so drained and depressed on Tuesday. Wednesday, well, Wednesday I get to meet with this person I like. That'll be better, but Wednesday night... You know, you just sort of go, we, we sit there and look ahead and already predict what sort of emotional state we'll be in. Jesus' joy was not predictable. Um, you know, you think about his life, uh, childhood trauma. He's not only born on the run, but as a toddler, he's hunted down by a genocidal madman, Herod, who believes that basically the predictions about him will result in his overthrow. Uh, fairly, er- we understand from what we read in the scriptures that he had to become the breadwinner of his family fairly early in his life because Joseph was no longer living, his earthly father. 
And then we could just fast forward into all the ministry difficulties he had. And it took a toll on him. In fact, at one point in the Gospels, someone estimates that he's near 50 years old, even though he's only 30 years old. That's a wonderful compliment, isn't it? You're 30 years old and someone you know, comes up to you and basically says, Hey, you know, I got this AARP thing in the mail and I thought you'd want it, right? Um, and yet he possesses joy that's undefeatable. When he talks about my joy, it immediately follows the prediction he makes about his own death and suffering. So he's staring down the reality of his circumstance, but there he's still talking about joy. In the book of Hebrews, it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So clearly, something else was going on where Jesus was not controlled by his circumstances. And last, for us, sometimes joy can be hyper-spiritual. Maybe you come from a spiritual tradition or a family tradition where there was this pressure just to always be joyful never show frustration, never show anger. And so you learn to sort of spiritualize things and speak in spiritual language. It's not authentic. Jesus' joy curiously coexisted with sorrow. It's a supernatural thing. You hear the Apostle Paul talk about it where he says sorrowful but rejoicing. Jesus had both of these things happening. He was able to find authentic joy without faking it. His life didn't float above the trials that he had. He didn't live by cheesy platitudes. And so the first thing about Jesus's joy that is worth our attention is that Jesus's joy was affected by circumstances, but it was not controlled by him. Second of all, that Jesus's supreme joy was in his relationship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Christian faith teaches that the Christian Godhead is a relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they live in perpetual, eternal joy, satisfaction, honor, harmony, love, and esteem. I mean, for all the amazing things that Jesus could do, if you ever sat there and said, if I could do more things, if I had more gifts, then I would be more joyful. Or all the things that he accomplished, defeating death and evil, raising from the dead, starting a global movement. If you ever thought, if I could just achieve more, or if I could go back. You know, the older you get, the temptation is you really want to hit the rewind button. And say, if I could have known what I know now, I could go back. You know, then I would be joyful. He did not find joy in those things. For all the things that he could do and he achieved, the great joy that he had was his relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. We read this in Luke 10. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And when you... Taught when you read about Jesus' ministry, he just won't shut up about his relationship with the Father. I do nothing of my own accord. I will seek him who sent me. 
His validation came from God the Father. There's a scene where John the Baptist shows up, the great prophet, and he honors Jesus and he validates that he's the Messiah. And he says, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. And Jesus says, you know, as much as of a blessing that is, your testimony doesn't mean that much to me. The testimony that means a lot to me is my father who said, this is my son, with him I am well pleased. Jesus' validation came from God, and he trusted in the love of the Father. He said, for the Father loves the Son. You think about 1 John, where a mark of a Christian is supposed to be someone who knows and relies on God's love for them. They know God's love, and they rely that he really does love them. And this is what enabled him to persevere. I mean, you think about it. In the end, what helps someone persevere through incredible hardship and difficulty? It's probably not the next purchase they're going to make. It's probably not the fact that their name might be on a building. It's usually some sort of relationship that's in their mind and their heart. And it causes us just to move on and on. You know? Now, here's the thing. If you make a human relationship your joy and satisfaction, it will fail you or you'll ruin it. There's no way. The the love that we were made to have, the joy we were made to have, can only be satisfied with God. If you put those divine joy expectations on other people, you'll crush and kill the relationship. And you will find yourself disappointed. This is why we persevere in knowing the joy of God. And here's the thing. When you get into relationship with God through Jesus, that same joy and love and relationship is available to you. Now, Peter was someone that knew Jesus. He knew his love. He had lived with him. He had failed Jesus, and he was reinstated in love. But listen what he says. He speaks to you and me. Because in our hearts we go, well, you know, Peter, you you knew Jesus. You have all these memories. This is what he says. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Jesus prayed for you and me that the world would know that we are loved just like the Father loves him. And when the disciples go out and have a chance to do some really supernatural things, Jesus says, don't rejoice that demons submitted to you. What does he say? Rejoice that your names were written in heaven. Rejoice in your identity. Rejoice in the Father's love. These are the only things that will do it for you and I. So you need to ask yourself, what are the things that sort of get me up and motivate me? Is it my relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? Do I know that joy? But there are things that can clog it up. One is unconfessed sin. If you have a superficial view of sin, if you think you're a pretty good person, you'll never really know the joy of salvation. Right? 
You can never know the joy of grace. And this is the strange paradox in the Christian faith. As you come to see more and more your desperate need for God's grace and mercy, you would think you'd get more depressed, but you don't. Your joy goes up. If you grasp what he has done, how he has loved you. Another thing that will clog up that relational joy is relationless religion. See, the temptation is always this. There's always something vying for the relationship. You know, in the similar way in our, our earthly relationships. And there are certain things that seek to crowd in. For instance, for some people, the center of their faith is really their love for education and theology. For other people, it's the love of doing stuff for God. For other people, it's the social safety net of the church. In fact, the relationship of other people in the church might mean too much to them. It means more to them than their relationship with God himself, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. A third thing that might clog it up is what I'll call quality of life faith. That my relationship with God is dependent upon the quality of life that I'm having or I believe that he owes me, that I should have. And so all along, I've had this relationship with him, but on the side, I've had this, you know, but you're going to do these things for me, right? And so Jesus is such a great example because, of course, Jesus gives up his glory when he comes to be with us on earth, but he is stripped of everything. (laughs) He's literally stripped of his clothing as he's crucified. The gospel tells us that Jesus comes into our world and instead of getting the renown and praise he deserves, he comes to bear our guilt and judgment. And then ultimately, the thing that he cherishes the most, his relationship with God the Father, that is broken. The Father has to turn from him. You know, when you and I are thrilled to be with someone. Maybe it's you're thrilled to be with a best friend you haven't seen in 10 years. Uh, I was, I was, this, this was probably about a month ago, and I don't know if they were sisters or best friends, but I, I forget where I was, but these, these two girls just went out of suitcase, and they just like hugged each other and laughed and like danced on the sidewalk. I was like, these must be really good friends. You know, when you're with someone that thrills you, maybe it's your grandchild, maybe it's your child, maybe it's someone you're crushed out on, you don't really even, you don't care. You don't care what you're doing. You don't care about your circumstance. They say, will you wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning and drive me to the airport? I'd love to do that. Will you help me clean, you know, my bathroom? I have to move out of this place? Sure, I'll be happy to do it. It's this idea that the relationship pulls you through the circumstance. And it's not just individually. When... When I don't rejoice, I pull the body down. And when I do rejoice, I bring the body forward. So the second thing is that Jesus' joy was centered in his relationship. But lastly, Jesus' joy was over God's sovereign grace. And that is the mercy he delivered and the people that he adopts and saves. It was his great joy. Luke 10, it says this. When he talks about, uh, he rejoices that God reveals these things to little children and all things have been committed. Why? First of all, he's joyful that God has 
power and goodness to save people. He says, all things have been handed over to me by the Father. While it might appear that evil has the upper hand, Jesus is rejoicing because that's not the truth. God exists and he actually has power to deliver people and save people. Jesus and the Father rule all things. There's this great story about Frederick Douglass. And uh, he was in um, Boston speaking at Faneuil Hall. And some people say it was his most pessimistic address because he was just so down at the treachery and violence that came from slavery. You know, he'd been fighting against it and fighting against it. And he just felt like, you know, there's really no other alternative here than armed revolt. And he mentioned that in his speech. And from the back of the room, this deep, booming voice said, Frederick, is God dead? And it was Sojourner Truth. It was Sojourner Truth, the great warrior for women's rights and freedom. And at that moment, the, the, the whole auditorium began to applaud. It was that hope, that understanding that God is not dead and he rules. And because of that reason, we can be joyful. He rose from the dead so we can be joyful. And because the Father and Son reign, and Jesus reigned even through the cross, we're told that the devil was disarmed of power and he was exposed to public shame. Jesus' joy and the sovereign grace of God and the power of it. But also there's joy because God has the power to overcome proud, self-righteous hearts. That's not a small thing. It's a very big thing. When he says you've revealed these things to little children, he's talking about humble, trusting hearts. Now, if you're someone from outside of the church that has come to know Jesus Christ, I'm sure that makes you rejoice and go, man, I had a self-righteous, proud heart, and I am so glad. But it ought to make those of you that have grown up in the church especially glad and thankful those raised in, quote-unquote, the covenant community, because that's who Jesus is rejoicing over. He's looking at his disciples. They were all good Jewish boys. They were raised in the covenant. And so he's rejoicing that God was able to break through with them. And you say, well, why is that such a big deal? You know, this is when you hear people in the church regularly say, well, I don't have much of testimony. I don't have much of a testimony. You know, I just kind of grew up in the church. You fail to see how unlikely it is that you would know the grace of God. Uh, there are some things that are so powerful, you can't be neutral around them. Money. If you're around great wealth, you're either going to become greedy or generous. Power. If you have access to great power, you're either going to become abusive with it or you're going to become an advocate. Sex. If you're around sex all the time, you're either going to become mastered and objectify people or you're going to be someone that understands the intimate gift of it. There's some things that are so powerful, you can't be around them without being changed one way or the other, good or evil. And the covenant community is like that. The holy things of God are like that. As you're around the scripture, the word of God, as you are around the character of God, the sacraments of God, the things that proclaim who God is, it's going to have one or two effects upon you. One, you're going to become more self-righteous and proud. 
And that's what you saw when Jesus came. The religious leaders, many in Israel. Let's not forget the great conversion story of the New Testament is not a pagan who is far away from God. It was a self-righteous, moralist, religious person, Paul. That's the great conversion story of the New Testament. So if you're around the holy things of God, you're either going to go that direction or you're going to become humble and needy for the grace of God and the mercy of God of God. So I want to say this today. If you've been raised in the church and today you are rejoicing in the mercy and grace of God, you are a walking, talking miracle. You have no idea how unlikely it would be that you would be praising him for his grace as you've been around the things of God for so long. The sovereign saving work of Christ is the source of joy for any and all of us. And so Jesus rejoices. He rejoices in the fact that captives are set free and people are delivered from their bondage, their guilt, their addiction, their destructive behavior. He rejoices in that. He's a joyful conqueror. We're told in the book of Zephaniah, that God is a mighty warrior and he comes and he sings songs of joy over his people. We always focus on the songs of joy part of that, but we fail to see that he's a warrior. He loves to deliver people. And also we're told that he loves to bring many sons and daughters to glory. Jesus is overjoyed when orphans become sons and daughters, when rebels come back to the family. And this becomes the greatest meaning in life. This is the thing that pulls you on because, you know, you're not going to be a joyful person if you basically have a small meaning. In that same Atlantic article, there was, um, they were reflecting on Viktor Frankl, a prominent Jewish psychiatrist, neurologist, who found himself in a Nazi death camp with his pregnant wife and his parents, who didn't survive. He survived. He wrote a book called Search for Meaning, and this is what he said. It is a characteristic of the American culture that again and again one is commanded and ordered to be happy. But happiness cannot be pursued. It must ensue. must be a result. One must have a reason to be happy. I don't know of any greater reason to be happy than to see God's mission of mercy where he liberates people from darkness. He sovereignly breaks through proud and righteous hearts and results in confident, loving, mercy warriors and justice warriors. That ought to bring us joy. I don't know why you came to Washington. I don't know what you thought would bring you joy. I think I probably thought, if I can shake off the, you know, the, the failure I felt in my previous ministries, and I could plant a church and it would be successful, then maybe I'd be joyful. Well, guess what? That happened. But you know what brings me joy? God's work in the life of people. But it's been a lot of, a lot of years, God, having to <laughs> detox me. I don't know why you came here. But there's only one purpose that's really going to give you that sort of joy. And it's the mission of God. 
in the lives of people through Jesus. So, the feeling of Jesus' joy. Let's pray. God, thank you for the promise that you'll give it to us. Give us your joy, your full joy. In Christ's name, amen.